0: Here, go with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 13th, 2017. This is episode 1983 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Thursday. That means it's a listener call show. This is where you pick your phone up and you dial some numbers. Those numbers are 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. You call that number, you leave me a message, and you might hear yourself within a week or three on the Survival Podcast, especially if you follow the formula. One, if you are on a cell phone, make sure you have a good signal a couple bars at least. Number two, speak loudly and clearly and into the phone. Number three, do not do not call me from a moving vehicle with the windows down, running a chainsaw, the back of a motorcycle, etc. Uh, number four, make sure that you make your point or ask your question in one sentence to maximum rate at the beginning of your call. Then fill in the details. You'll be more likely to get through screening that way. Today we have calls on the student loan bubble, using coffee for compost and soil conditioning. Also, the skinny on chicken manure for fertilizer. Thoughts on adding a mechanic to the expert council. A follow-up on the complex uh, thing that I, I took on with uh, uh, a couple and the in-laws wanting to give them some land and kind of holding them under their thumb and... Somebody that sort of kind of went through it themselves and has some more to add. A new look at the 10 millimeter, specifically as a protection round from bears, and thoughts on stocking a pond. We'll have all that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Bobwell's Nursery has become my go-to for fruit trees, nut trees, and hard-to-find edibles. Their customer service is second to none, and they even provide a 10% discount for all MSB members. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasonings, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1983 because the episode's 1983. I have two from Alex Shrug today. I have the Soviet shoot down Korean Airlines Flight 007, and we have the Beirut bombings and Alex Shrug's bombing. I've got tons of bullet points, so I'm just going to read a few at random for you for this year. Uh, notable births in TV Mila Kunis is born Meg Griffin on Family Guy Also uh, what's her name Jackie on uh, um, 70s show I believe that's that's that same person uh, In movies Jonah Hill from Moneyball is born Chris Hemworth who is Thor And Andrew Garfield The Amazing Spider-Man And Felicity Jones Star Wars Rogue One Carrie Underwood and Michelle Branch In Music are born this year Uh, This year in film, Return of the Jedi, once you start down the dark path forever, will it dominate your destiny, Yoda. Trading Places, Eddie Murphy has made a stockbroker on a $1 bet, I loved it. Um, That movie is, uh, is a movie that was lucky to get made. Um, Aaron Russo was the creator of that movie He would later release a documentary Called Freedom to Fascism And if you've never seen it, you should look it up Again, it's called Freedom to Fascism uh, that movie, Trading Places, wasn't what it appeared to be, which was just like a run-on-the-mill, you know, kind of shtick type movie. That was Russo actually describing how the elite viewed us. And if you've never seen Trading Places, it's worth watching. And watching it from the standpoint of the elite controlling the world uh, takes on a whole new meaning. War Games comes out this year. Matthew Broderick uses his hobby computer to launch a nuclear attack. Risky Business, Tom Cruise in his underwear, and Yentl. That was the one out of all of those that sucked. That was a terrible movie. I just don't like Barbara Streisand. Nothing really against the film, because Alex Shrugg seems to have liked it. I really don't like Barbara Streisand. This year in TV, The Day After, uh, which is uh, a two-part miniseries made for TV movie. If you haven't seen it, it's worth seeing. Star Shirts, a talent show hosted by Ed McMahon. Notable contestants include... Adam Sandler, Dennis Miller, Drew Carey, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake-Usher, and none of these future stars won. I think the only person that ever won on that show that became... Uh, a success, a big time success, was at the time known as the Mark Miller brand, later known as Sawyer Brown. That's for me. Also, uh, the A Team, Mama's Family, Webster, and Reading Rainbow uh, debut this year in music. Karma Chameleon, Billy Jean, Flashdance, and compact compact discs go on sale in 2015. A player costs over 1,600 bucks. A disc will run 33 to $36 again in, in 2015. dollars. There's so much of the rest of this, I really recommend you check it out yourself, but I'm going to call the bullet points at that point. And I'm going to read the Soviet shoot-down Korean Airlines Flight 007 because of the two, I remember this one personally as a child more. It's a passenger liner for heaven's sake. Why would they do such a thing? Well, it wandered into their airspace at a time when reports that a U.S. spy plane was in the area. The Soviets didn't think a passenger liner would be swaying around here. Airliners should know where they're going and that there are sensitive Soviet installations in the area. The pilots first noticed that something was wrong when the missile hit. The Soviets said they fired several warning shots. Yeah, maybe. It took 10 minutes for them to crash. No survivors. U.S. Congressman Larry McDonald was on board. He was also president of the John Birch Society. Whether you liked him or not, every Red blooded American is royally torqued off now and thus begins a series of unfortunate events that leads us very close to a nuclear war. My take by Alex Shrugged, okay, what went wrong? At the time, there were no GPS systems to navigate. The airlines used a rudimentary autopilot system that depended on radio beacons and a computer-calculated dead reckoning, that is, deducted reckoning by knowing the speed, direction, and initial starting point. The autopilot could correct the course within limits using radio beacons along the way, but for some unknown reason, the autopilot was not in the correct mode. They were miles and miles off course, and this error went unnoticed until, bam, a catastrophic decompression and into the drink. Three weeks later, a malfunctioning Soviet early warning system declared the U.S. had launched all its nuclear missiles at Russia. It's a retaliation for Flight 007. Or is it a mistake? A lieutenant colonel stopped the counter launch. He looked carefully at the data and decided it was a mistake. Thank God, yeah. The life and death of millions lay at the hands of that lieutenant colonel that day. I'm not sure a general would have done any better. President Reagan called for the declassification of the GPS system after this incident. It's closing the barn door after the horses have left, but there will be other horses indeed. I think that you have to be around my age or older to remember what this time was like. And it's interesting that the same year that this happened, that the day after, and War Games both came out. And it was looking more and more like we would go to World War III at some point with Russia, uh, the Soviet Union at the time. And their days were numbered. Their empire was falling apart. They just weren't really aware of it yet, honestly. And we weren't either. And so it seemed like this might go on forever, Then if it went on long enough that that we would be at war. And I remember a newspaper political cartoon, and it was like a Russian aircraft identification thing, and it was making fun of this shot down. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but one of them was Santa and his reindeer. Like it was silhouettes, like on it when you learn how to identify aircraft by you know, black and white silhouettes. And it was clearly Santa and his reindeer, and it was like a uh, you know, U.S. fighter uh, plane or f- fighter squadron or something like that. And what it makes me realize now is how... We were controlled by the media at that time to believe Russia was just, the Soviet Union really, was just a bunch of like crazy lunatics that hated the world and wanted to kill everyone. And I see that going on now with people beating the, the war drums around syria and north korea and people talking about things on facebook like having a war party uh, especially now that everybody seems to be in complete jovality because it looks like china's on board with the u.s and basically telling uh, north korea to knock it off and uh, you know seems on board with it anyway and uh, people talking like it's going to be like uh, the gulf war all over again where it was you know a hundred countries against one little tiny country and Maybe they forget that that's kind of what the Korean conflict was in the first place. It was UN forces in many countries on board with that. In that particular instance, though, China joined the side of North Korea and basically fought the rest of the world to a stalemate. Um, whether or not we could take out North Korea, and I believe we have the capability to do so very, very quickly if we wanted to. Uh, whether or not we take out Syria, and there's a lot more danger of Russia interfering there than there is of China interfering in North Korea. Um, it doesn't mean we should. It doesn't mean we should take joy in, in, in the death of others. And it has a lot of times been major global conflicts have begun because, well, we could just take that one thing and make it go away. And we should have learned by now that the use of U.S. military force has limitations. And... I feel like in many ways that we're, we're, we're falling back into the type of feeling that we had in the 1970s and 1980s. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The difference is this time I see a lot more clearly what's going on. I'm not willing to believe that everybody else is bad and we're the only good force in the world and everybody that we say is bad is bad and that everybody that we kill deserves to die anymore. I invite many of you to broaden your views and your your lens and look deeper at what's going on in the world. It won't necessarily change it, but maybe there'll be a few less people beating the war drums. And what always amazes me is the people that beat the drums the loudest are the ones that will never bleed in war. The ones that will never be asked to spill blood in war. Those are the ones that beat the drum the loudest. The armchair warriors. Um... I want to play a song for you in the middle of today's show. I usually play one at the end, and this is not from this year. This is actually from 1989. I'm actually just going to play one verse of it for you. I shared this verse on Facebook yesterday. It's something we should think about now as we stand, once again it seems, on the eve of war. And those words, if you missed any of them, oh, beautiful for spacious skies, but now those skies are threatening. They're beating plowshares into swords for this tired old man that we elected king. Armchair warriors often fail, and we've been poisoned by these fairy tales. The lawyers clean up all details, since daddy had to lie. In other words, same shit, different day. All the way up here in 2017. Do not be misled by the TV set and the talking heads that exist on it. There is no need for us to be clamoring for war with any of these nations at this time. Just my take by Jack Spierko. And with that, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day. I have a call here on the student loan bubble.
1: Hi Jack, this is Christina. My question is about the student loan bubble. You and many others have predicted that the huge student loan situation will come to a head at some point soon. How do you see the student loan bubble unraveling? I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the crisis might evolve. Um, what will be the warning signs and how will it unfold after that? What do you predict the step-by-step order of events will be? Now, this is just for pedagogical or instructional purposes. I'm not going to start yelling, OMG, and this is the end of the world as we know it, and run out and buy buckets full of rice and beans and an AR-15. I'm just interested in how this event might unfold. Thanks.
0: Okay, so I think the danger of the student loan bubble popping is largely misunderstood, and it may be more like a... Uh, a, a, a a slow, seeping, deflating bubble then a burst. Um, so comparing it to other things like the housing bubble, the housing bubble indeed popped. Uh, it was things are kind of okay one day and they were like crazy the next. And it was because of the way that the housing market works. If you didn't pay your mortgage, the bank really didn't get any of the money you got to understand that in the world of student loans, there's two types. There's private loans and there's government-backed loans. The vast majority of the loans are government-backed, which means the government's covering the shortfall if you don't pay your bill, though you're still on the hook for it. And later they'll collect it from you, and yet the lender still gets it, so they get paid twice. Yeah, I, I can't go into that complexity, but that's how this thing's managed to last that long in the first place. Right now, about 40% of people with student loan uh, debt are making no payments. None. None. Um, It is somewhere in the neighborhood of like a million people in serious default. So just because you're not making any payments doesn't mean you're in serious default. How does that work? Well, when they say 40% are making no payments, they mean average per month. So you might not make a payment this month but you make a payment next month that type of thing right but I want you to think about this if if 40% of people were not making payments on their house what would happen to the real estate market it would collapse it would just collapse uh, 40% of people were not making payments on their car payments. The the, the, the the automotive market would just collapse. So there's resiliency built up in the student loan market because, the, because the, the, this, the way the debt is insured by government, far more so than, let's say, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac insures the uh, large majority of uh, mortgages out there. Of course, remember, they're not loaning real money. They're loaning fake money. The money is being created when it's loaned. As well, So the bank is not taking uh, $20,000 this year for your student loan and giving it to you. Just like with a mortgage, they're making a journal entry that creates $20,000, and as long as they're holding $2,000 in reserves, banks can do that kind of lending on anything. Plus, they get this little gravy boat of the federal government. See, it's a constant bailout. It's not a single bailout. But there's a limit to how much of this can go on. I think the real danger of the student loan bubble is not just students not paying back the debt. It's going to get to a point where students won't take the loans to go to college because they won't be able to see a way out of it. So it it may end up being more like a fizzle. And the big disruption will be more to the institutions of higher learning themselves. Because no one can afford to write a check out of pocket to go to college anymore. As they've made student loans more and more available, the the universities have just continuously raised their, their rates. And they've built new buildings and did wonderful things that didn't need to be done, and they pay some of their professors ridiculous amounts of money. Of course, they have great retirement, so they get tenure after so much time, and then they can never be fired, and they can sit around on their ass and teach a couple classes a day and keep drawing their salary. I mean... It's a mess, and it's been subsidized by all this government-backed lending. So I think the biggest danger of the bubble popping isn't just the default. And I think you'll see that, too. More and more default is, like, people don't pay on it and nothing happens to them. Uh, and what are you going to do, throw everybody in debtor's prison? And people just not having the money? And people, a lot of what's going on with the public debt is that people are taking you know, minimum-wage jobs paying on their debt, I think it's like 10 years, they pay based on their income, and then the rest of the debt's forgiven if they make good payments based on their income for that time. So a lot of people that are current are never going to actually repay the full value of their loan, leaving it with the American taxpayer to make up the difference. A lot of people in default are going to be having their Social Security freaking garnished someday to pay this stuff back. But what's the, the bigger problem is this is a Ponzi. The whole thing's a revolving Ponzi. The, 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 and I don't mean the loan so much as the, the college institutions themselves or the Ponzi. So they sell you an education for, let's say, $100,000. And that's money that's all been borrowed. Now, they got that money and they spent it. It's gone. They need more money. But their costs keep going up because, well... They keep giving teachers raises, and they keep building buildings, and saying they need new initiatives and all kinds of crap. And you know, the, the money that they get thrown by the government for grants and shit like that for research, all no, that just isn't enough, right? So then they need to sell the same education four years later to somebody for one hundred ten thousand dollars, and then and four years later they need to sell it for one hundred twenty, one hundred thirty thousand dollars, and they have to keep selling the same product for more and more money in a world where technology keeps taking the price of everything else and driving it down. I mean, about the only place you see a product continue to go up in price is real estate and cars. Maybe aircraft, but that's not something the average person buys, right? Everything else is deflationary in price because it's technology and the pricing curve and economy of scale. Now, cars actually are not really more expensive inflation-adjusted than they were in the past for what you get. The car that you get today, compared to a car you got in 1970, is a completely different machine. It's hard to really, you know, apples to apples with that. But education? These guys are literally selling the same education over and over and over for more and more money, and it is a product that can be, can be commoditized. It can be broken down. It can be, it can be made less expensive tomorrow with technology. And be just as good, if we look at the people coming out of these institutions, with the exception of the people with advanced degrees, with degrees in things like engineering and and whatever, when you see these people coming out with degrees in marketing or business management or communications or gender studies or any of this bullshit, you know... um, people that are taking distance-based education that has nowhere near the overhead for the provider and therefore nowhere near the cost for the student have every bit as much competency as these people going to these these schools. So I think what you're going to see is this continued migration out of this expensive system into more and more options. And then the problem with the, the POP is... The portion of the economy that is higher education, which is probably like 10% of the United States economy, is either directly or indirectly related to universities and colleges and things like that. We don't even think about the things like all of the money that's spent by parents and students so that they can get into college. So it's, it's being spent before they even go. You have the government blathering on about free college for everybody, which further, you don't understand, and no one gets this, and people get on me when I get on this kick about, you know, no, not everybody needs to go to college. The more people with a degree, the less valuable the freaking degree is. I mean, can you not understand that? If one in ten people walking around have a four-year college degree, the premium for an employee with that degree is very high. If 70% of people walking around looking for a job have a degree, there's no premium for a degree at all. It might be a requirement to get certain jobs, but there's no premium on it anymore. Because I, you're a commodity now. You're not a specialist. You're not important. Your degree doesn't mean shit to me. There's 40 other people sitting out there waiting to interview with me that have degrees too. And that's what we've done. We've devalued the degree by while drastically increasing the price. So the, what, what actually happens is these colleges start to go out of business, they start to downsize, they have to start to sell off assets, and it could t- it tailspin into a massive recession or even depression for the entire country. Now, if the government does nothing, it'll be very short-lived, and you'll see the rise of alternative learning happen almost overnight, because it's already there, it's just not really embraced yet. But if the government attempts to bail it out further and does you know, student loan forgiveness and all this other shit, which they will, they can keep this giant Leviathan beast alive for a lot longer. And that's what I'm saying. Instead of a pop, it's going to be more like this fizzling out. That's, that's what I think is actually going to happen. And maybe we should like, use it like the, the student loan bubble going flat instead of popping is a better way to explain it. I hope that makes sense. Let's take another one
1: coffee shop that's saving uh, coffee grounds and compost for me. Uh, I'm getting about 15 gallons a week of 95% coffee grounds, 5% compostable. Uh, Is that okay to just
2: add to the soil? Should I amend it any? Worried about maybe being too acidic. Thanks.
0: You know, this one has so much in common, really, even though it sounds different with the next one. I'm going to go ahead and play the next question, and I'm going to handle them both in one answer. Let's go ahead.
2: Hey, Jack. Donovan from the Portland area. Just uh, curious about your thoughts on manure tea, specifically chicken manure tea. I don't think I've heard you talk about that yet. Um, the question really is about uh, if it's safe to use. Well, not safe, but uh, some people say that it's too hot to use unless it's been composted. The manure has been composted. Some people say you can use fresh manure, and if it's diluted enough, it's not going to burn the plants. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of mixed... Mixed uh, things on the internet about that. Uh, Just curious what you think. Thanks, Jack. Bye.
0: Okay, so what we have questions about are using chicken manure and using coffee grinds, both as either compost or fertility aids or things like that, or making a tea from chicken manure, which doesn't sound real appetizing to me compared to like a compost tea. When we look at manures and we look at soil amendments and we look at any type of fertility add, we, we, we really put them into two camps. We put them into the camp of being a hot manure or a hot fertility aid, and we put them into the camp of being a cool one. And we can compost cool manures and cool fertility aids, uh, but we have to compost hot ones. what, What happens with chicken manure, if we use it directly, we can literally burn plants up with the nitrogen amount that's in them. And the other thing is many manures like chicken manure have a high propensity to have pathogens in them. So especially if we're using them on anything edible, where whatever we're using might touch the edible portion of the plant, we have the ability to be you know, propagating things like E. coli and worse on our food. Not a good idea. This doesn't mean that you can't do it. It doesn't mean that some people don't do it. It doesn't mean that somebody's not going to pound the keyboard with, I do it every day and I've done it my whole life and my plants are fine. This is not a best practice and it's not something that you should be doing. Specifically making chicken manure tea I don't think is a good idea. I just don't. I really don't think you should do that. Coffee is not really a manure. Coffee would be classified in the world of, of compost as a brown it's a it's a very low nitrogen high carbon source it's uh it's a, actually a good source though of small amounts of nitrogen and it does break down well over time and as a cool product it can be used directly on your on your soil and your plants and th- stuff like that used more as a mulch dug into the soil one of the things it really does well though is it feeds soil microbes uh, when I was a kid, long before they came out with things like magic worm food and all, and we used to go pull night crawlers every time it rained. So we always had night crawlers for fishing. We had our little tubs, the little, the little styrofoam cooler tubs that both ends opened on. I'm sure they still make them held together by like a, like a, a bungee cord basically. And that way you could open either side. So when they were on the bottom, you flipped it over and opened all the worms were in there. And we would keep those worms for a long time. What we fed them was coffee grounds a little handful of coffee grounds on the surface of it and throw that in the fridge to keep them cool and, and safe. And, you know, you'd come back and uh, every couple of weeks, you know, all the coffee grounds would be gone. You'd throw a little more in there, not too much at once because there isn't some acidity issues you can get into with too much of it. Um, but we fed worms uh, coffee grinds. So if we're putting coffee grinds on the soil, we're feeding worms and other soil biology. That's a big part of what we're doing. It's not just the direct application it makes a good compost as well. Now, I wouldn't recommend making coffee grind tea because you're making wheat coffee. You're not really making any kind of a fertility aid. But if we, if we compost coffee grinds or chicken maneuver or anything fully composted, then making compost tea is a very valid thing that we can do to improve the fertility of our soil. So I'm going to recommend with chicken manure that we're... we're collecting it onto a carbon source in the first place, something like straw on the floor of our chicken coop. And that what we're going to do is when we have enough of it, we're going to pile it up and we're going to put it through a full composting situation. Either a very long, slow compost, or just pile it up and walk away for a year until we come back and it's done Or we're going to turn it, you know, the first time we're going to turn it in four days, and then we're going to turn it every two to three days for about 18 to 21 days. And uh, by doing that, we're going to get a very hot, quick composting action. We're going to bind up that nitrogen with carbon into that breakdown and get a very good compost product. But let's not be using chicken manure directly for anything to do with fertility. Because we're not going to get the best bang for our buck out of it. We are going to potentially cause problems with our plants and burning them up. We are going to potentially uh, build up soil bacteria that is the bad bacteria, the stuff where the bad guys, the, the anaerobes that we're not looking for. Uh, and we are going to potentially be breeding diseases for ourselves, our animals, etc. So let's not do that. Coffee grinds, again, you can use them straight away. The thing is, with as much as you're getting, depending on how much surface area you have to put, put them out on, I wouldn't you know, do anything more than a thin layer on the soil surface. And until it's worked in by the soil organisms, I wouldn't add more. So you may be getting more than you can use or you may be getting the right amount. You'll have to make that determination for yourself. If you're getting more than you can use, then this is a great composting medium. And uh, one of the easiest ways to compost that is if you mow and you have a bag mower or even a side eject mower, and you just take and you put about one-third grass clippings, To the amount of uh, coffee grinds you have and mix those in a pile, that'll cook off for you like you wouldn't believe. It'll cook off really, really quick. You get a lovely, lovely compost out of it. And uh, I mean, the only problem is maybe getting enough of it to do that for you. So you might want to save up your surplus until you can, you know, make a fairly good pile. You don't have to, everybody says a yard. Uh, To do a good compost pile, you don't really need a yard. Uh, but something like a uh, a piece of uh, horse fencing or goat fencing that's three or four foot tall that you make a you know a loop that you can you know can't quite get your arms around. If you think about like an average man like doing a bear hug and about I don't know what the diameter of that would be about six feet I guess uh, about six foot diameter and kind of fill that you know two to three feet high with that mixture and then just let it sit for a couple of days keeping it moist and covered and uh, just pull the, the, the fencing off of it, and then just shovel it back into it. That's all you really have to do, and, and that will compost quickly for you, or with the quantity you're getting, you can be building little piles like that. Just leave them alone. Yeah, turning compost is great, but if you just leave it alone and leave it there long enough, you know by, by next season you'll have tons of compost sitting there waiting to be used. Anyway, I hope that helps, and I think it made sense to put those two together. Let's take another one.
1: Jack, this is Matt, uh, also known as Dog from Tom's River, New Jersey. Just a comment in regards to the expert council. Uh, I'm listening to the most re- recent vehicle episodes the we're rigging, and uh, I'm learning stuff from that. And if that's your point, that was an awesome point. Thank you for that. Um, what are the chances of getting a no, another member? I know you're trying to limit it on the expert council, somebody in regards to automotive. Uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for everything you're doing. And uh, my life is better because of your show. Thank you.
0: Um, actually, that was kind of in my head with planning and just there's so much going on in my life right now that I'm trying to get some stuff done before I add anything to it. I've actually been reached out to by two law enforcement officers, both offering to uh, to fill the role of a law enforcement officer on, on the uh, show. And I'm not really sure which way to go, and I haven't gotten back to you all yet. So if either of you are listening today, I am considering both of you. One is no longer on the force, and I think that offers some advantages because they can be completely public about who they are. The other one is no longer on the force, but is or is still active duty, uh, but is uh, blogging under a pen name to protect their identity. So that offers some advantage as well uh, because they have current access to information, though that puts me in the, the the position of having a sensitive source, so I'm not really sure what way to go on that. I won't have to go through that uh, with the mechanic. I've actually thought about a couple other planks to fill out on the expert council. On mechanic, I've a good friend to the show is Charles the Humble Mechanic, and I don't know if he would have the time given all he's got going on in his own life, but I've been kicking around the idea of reaching out to him Uh, because I think he's got a pretty good diverse background, and because I think if I used him, since he has his own production capabilities, that uh, we know we'd get good quality audio, he'd be... because I think some people think, well, I'll just be on the council, it'll be easy, and it isn't hard, but it does require discipline, and, I mean, there are some people that'll probably get cut soon, because they don't get their answers in. Um, You know, I'm just saying, one's a really great friend, but I'm probably by the end of this month going to make all these decisions, and some people are just going to just go away as council members because I can't have a council member who makes a call in once every three months. And uh, so it takes discipline, uh, it takes dedication, it takes actually being committed to this audience. And I think we'd get that out of Charles. But I'll also say, you know, maybe someone else out there would like that opportunity that is a very experienced mechanic with a, a great deal of uh, diversity. Because I mean, I learned some things in follow up from that show. I wanted to make sure I put out. So I talked about two things that you really shouldn't do anymore. And since I don't really work on modern vehicles, I didn't know that you shouldn't do them anymore. One was testing the alternator by disconnecting the negative terminal of the battery. This was a go-to when I was a kid, man. If you had a car that had a dead battery and you wanted to know if the battery was, uh, was, was just dead or was the alternator not charging the battery, you started the car up and you disconnected the battery. If the car kept running for 10, 20 minutes, well, then the alternator was just fine. If it shut off, then the alternator wasn't charging, you know, and, and, and that meant that the the, the the alternator had a problem. Uh, well, apparently doing that on new cars can screw stuff up. You shouldn't do it. And then the other thing was like a starter that won't start, getting under and just tapping on it with a hammer. Um, you really shouldn't do that with modern starters. I haven't even thought about doing that in a long time, but uh, but that was, a, a, like I told the story, it was, I drove a car for quite a while doing that with it until I got a new starter motor for it. Um uh, didn't have anybody tell me you can't jump a starter anymore with a screwdriver, so I'm going to assume we could still do that. But I think there's a lot <clears throat> that we can learn about new vehicles versus old vehicles. And, uh, you know, things like, you know, when somebody gets an estimate on some kind of a repair, are they being ripped off? Because I, I almost tore the head off some people down at the Ford dealership yesterday. I really did uh, on some work on my, my old diesel truck. Um, and they've got this new system now, it's all automated, and they're asking you to approve or disprove uh, repairs without giving you the price until you say yes or no. Um, Just really, really shitty service. Uh, I probably won't go to that dealership ever again. And uh, I think that, you know, I'm the guy that's not going to get taken advantage of, but they sure tried. And I think there's a lot of people out there that don't know what to ask, and I think it'd be really valuable to have a law enforcement officer and a, 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 I'm sorry, a, a mechanic on the on the show for that purpose, and a law enforcement officer for a lot of these other things, uh, including evaluations of things where we go, hey, that cop was being brutal uh, and and using police brutality and over the top. For an analysis, that's an honest analysis by somebody that's on the job. You know, was it or wasn't it, in your opinion? And if it was over the top, how might it have gotten that way? What might have been going on? How might it have been avoided by the person that was the victim, even though they're not really responsible? We still want to avoid these things. You know, I don't want the shit beat out of me by 10 cops, even if I'm right. I mean, if I'm right enough, I might have a lawsuit, but I still don't want to do that. I don't want to end up in that situation. And I think there are people out there kind of baiting cops into these situations today, and I don't think that's very cool. I really don't. Cops have enough of a hard job without people trying to bait them into these types of situations. Um, it makes me think of the most recent thing with this guy on the airline. Uh, those of you that are pissed off at United, you can be pissed off at United, but the people that did it were cops. They'll say, well, they were airport police. or They, they were cops. Okay, they were cops. The United called on the state for a solution, and the state solution was violence. And uh, I've heard people defending the airline because, well, there's a contract. and You don't know what you think you know about law. We'll actually get more into that one probably either tomorrow or Monday on what the legal ramifications are. And by the way, the CEO of United said yesterday on, on television – that the passenger that, that refused to leave the plane did nothing wrong that 's an exact quote from the CEO of united that 's pretty much a confession right there, and that 's pretty much an admittance that they 're going to get their ass kicked in court my My prediction is that this court case will never happen that it will be settled out of court uh, it 's pretty pretty likely in my view that that 's going to going to happen but i 'm wondering if you guys have other um, other things you think might make a good council member, other areas, because the truth is I get a lot of questions for some council members and only a few for others, you know, a few here and there. And and that means that I actually do have more room on the council because I'm not going to force questions for council members. If we don't get questions for a council member, we don't get questions for a council member. And and on that note, I, I need questions for council members. I need questions for Nick Ferguson. Uh, and Ben Falk, who usually get a lot of questions. I need questions for Mike and Sue Laprise, you know, on homeschooling and raising your kids in, you know, in a, in a positive environment. I have no questions for either of them right now. I get tons of questions for Stephen Harris, for Doc Bones, uh, quite a few for Tim Glantz, though I'm out of questions for him right now. John Pugliano, I get a lot of questions for. Um, so I want to add other council members, but I want to add council members that will actually get questions and will be utilized. Um, I uh, when I you know I kind of think that we would definitely get questions for a law enforcement officer. We would definitely get them for a mechanic, at least for a while. Um, it makes me think though we had Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives, who everybody loves, and we just didn't get enough knife questions. I, mean, I got like three and never got another one. So I was going to make him a permanent member, but the question just didn't come in. So I mean, but he'd still do it. So if you have questions on knives, and cutting implements, and things like that. Get those in me, TSPC expert in the subject line, and if you have an idea uh, for a type of person, or you are a person that thinks you would fit well on the council, send me an email, TSPC expert in the, ca- the, the, the subject line, and tell me about your idea, or if it's you, yourself, and what you think you could contribute. And frankly, I'd love to have another woman. Uh, we're very male-dominant there. Nurse Amy is technically on with Doc Bones, but we never hear from her. Doc, you need to get Amy on the air. Um uh, And we've got Erica Strauss But that's it And I think having a, a female perspective More often might be beneficial To the show Anyway, just my thoughts on that And an invitation for you to submit ideas Or suggestions for council members uh, Let's take another one
2: uh, Hi, I'm calling in about uh, Episode 1980 I'm um, calling in about the in-laws and getting land and how the wife is wanting to make the move and the husband wasn't sure if that's what he wanted to get into or not and i just want to call in from personal experience um and tell you that from my experience um everything that jack said was spot on to a t every detail of what he said was spot on and everything that i've experienced was exactly what we went through Thankfully, our situation is over, and I don't have to worry about that anymore. But uh, me and my wife have been together for uh, just under 10 years. Uh, with We do have kids. And we had noticed some major controlling things early on in our relationship, and they started pushing the property thing with us. And same thing, trying to do it as inheritance, and I just got a bad gut feeling about it from the very beginning. They kept nicely and politely pushing it on us and I it just didn't feel right to me and even though my wife had issues with her parents in the past with stuff they had done they've been pretty nice and things have gone well for a year or two and she thought it might be a good idea and I uh, thankfully just asked her to please uh, ask them some questions like Jack suggested and to take notice very carefully at their response and how they reacted and and see how things go and thankfully she started to uh agree with me that we needed to w- stay away from that situation um uh, what jack said about them using that as a pawn is a controlling thing and, and with in what the caller had mentioned it, it is going to be amplified times a hundred when they if you go towards that property <clears throat> they will use it um it very much as a controlling thing and um and the the number one thing that I think you should take away from all this situation is, is what Jack said, is that situation will be cancerous more than you can ever imagine. And in my case, I, I don't know yours, but I, I know that my wife is great. I care about her very much. I love her very much. And that's who I want to be with forever. And the only major issues or conflicts we've had in 10 years of marriage is dealing with, with her controlling parents and how how aggressive we need to be to tell them to back off. And if you're not even in the same city as them and it's a problem already, you definitely don't want to move onto their property, whether it's given, bought, or whatever. It's something I would be very cautious about. Everybody has to make a- But the best thing we ever did was make the final decision to say no. And they just proved that we made a good decision when we uh, put in an offer on some property about six months ago and they flipped out. They were very displeased with us, and it just just made us very grateful that we had decided not to go that route. So um, good luck in your situation, and just remember that that situation can be very cancerous in your marriage, and I would do whatever I could to keep my family and my wife and my kids all together. So good luck. Thanks.
0: I guess for those that didn't hear the original, there was a, a, a situation that seems pretty clear to me by listening to this. You'd basically be able to figure it out. But the in-laws of the gentleman that wrote in to me wanted to offer him a piece of property. Uh, it's like a pre-inheritance thing. Uh, you know. The, so the, the, His wife's mother and stepfather, they had a track record of kind of pushing and leveraging them and, and, and trying to get them to do things and stuff like that. Uh, that person actually wrote back in to me and said he he very much appreciated my advice, and the situation's kind of gone now. Like, as soon as they asked the specific questions, like, oh, well, no, we were just, you know, like, it kind of went away, so I'm, I'm glad for him. The, the reason that I wanted to to play this, though, and do a little bit of follow-up on it, though, is kind of some advice for couples is I don't know if I hit it hard enough on what I think you need to do to survive as a couple in the world today. It needs to be you and your spouse first, always, every time, before either of y'all's parents or grandparents or grandmothers or kids or uncles or aunts or friends or stepfathers or stepmothers or in-laws or sisters or cousins, I don't give a damn. When, when when you marry someone and you decide that you want to spend the rest of their life with them, I think you really need to understand what that means. That means for richer, for poorer, you know, in sickness and health. And in spite of what your mom thinks, okay, just to be blunt. Like, I think I actually maybe we should add that to the marital vows. In spite of what your mom and dad thinks, you know. You, you, this will be your your partner for life. That doesn't mean that your partner can't do things that destroy the relationship, such as you know a guy beating a woman. I mean you're just a piece of shit. You should go to jail, and the woman should get out of the relationship immediately. Uh, cheating on on a, a partner with someone, you know, an extramarital affair type thing. To me, these are things that are grievous and 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 show you that you're in a relationship with the wrong person. Uh, I've seen relationship ended because one party is deeply into drugs and refuses to see. Treatment and do anything about it, and just doesn't care anymore, and you just can't fix that person, you know, um, but you know a- assuming that each side is bringing you know to the table their share and bearing their responsibility for being part of a couple, then the the front needs to be united at all times, and I think that more wives and husbands both should be telling their parents when anything negative is said about their spouse, stop right now, because you're going to damage our relationship if you talk bad about the person I love and have committed my life to. I don't want to hear it from you ever again. Ever again. Because it'll put a stop to that shit like that. And if, if they say, well, I'm not talking, hang the phone up, fine. When you don't want to be a child anymore, give me a call and we'll talk then. The, the the fact that married couples let mother-in-laws, father-in-laws, etc. interfere in their marriage is ridiculous, it's preposterous, it's obscene. Because you didn't marry him and his mom. You married him. You didn't marry her and her father. You married her. That's why fathers give daughters away. It's a symbolic letting go. Always be your daughter... But you gotta stay out of their life as an adult unless they ask for your help. And parents, you need to think about this shit too, when you have older grown married kids. There's some things I have concerns about my son's marriage, and they're his freaking business, not mine. My job is to support him. That that's how that works. And, and that's how you have strong family units. Strong families don't take shit from each other, okay? The dysfunctional family unit that we have today started when everybody started taking shit from everybody and putting people ahead of their spouse. And again, including your children. Your children do not come before your spouse. Your spouse comes before your children. That doesn't mean that your children don't get incredibly good care taken of them. It doesn't mean that you don't love them with every fiber of your being. And if your spouse is being an ass and acting like a child and demanding that their needs come first. That's different. But in a general day-to-day basis, you look out for each other first, your kids second, and everybody else is a distant freaking third. And that includes grandma. That includes grandma. Grandma doesn't get her way just because she's grandma. And grandpa doesn't get his way just because he's grandpa. And I say that with a wife that is a grandma and and I am a grandpa. We love our grandchildren. We want to see them. We want to be part of their lives. But we're not going to tell their parents how, how to raise them. And if we were, then my son would be right to tell me to shut my hole. And I just hope that I brought him up well enough that if I ever overstep my boundary, he he will do it. I would be proud of him if at some moment I lost myself, made the mistake of overstepping my boundaries. I would want him to tell me to butt the hell out. I would be very proud of him for that. And if your parents or your in-laws are not proud of you for that tough shit, maybe if you do it long enough, they'll get a clue and they will be. I'm not saying to be a dick to be a dick here or be an asshole to be an asshole. What I'm saying is when, when somebody, anybody outside of your marriage begins to meddle with your marriage, to meddle with your relationship, the response needs to be swift and firm. I'm sorry, you've overstepped your boundaries. You need to go back over there and close your mouth and not talk about this to me anymore. And it's always best that it come from the child of that parent. That if it's, if, it's a, if it's an overstep, criticizing the husband by a mother-in-law, that that young woman tell her mother to close her hole. Because she can do it and the guy can't. And vice versa. If it's the, 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 the husband's in-laws interfering in that relationship, saying negative things about the spouse, dad, mom, whatever, shut up. I don't need to be a dick about this, but shut up. Do not talk to me about my wife that way ever again. And anybody that doesn't think that's right, check your head. Make sure it's screwed all the way on. Because that's what marriage is supposed to be. You and your spouse first, and the rest of the world second. Doesn't mean you don't care about them. Doesn't mean you don't love them. But the person you promised to be with until the day they put you in a box, that's your spouse. Try to remember that, and you'll have a stronger family and a greater chance of survival as a family unit, which has become rare in today's day and age. It doesn't have to be. That one thing alone would massively increase how long people stay together and how likely it would be that when they say death does us part, they actually meant it. Let's take another one.
1: Hey, Jack. uh, Main topic is 10-millimeter ammo. Um, Anyway, I was thinking that maybe you should revisit the 10 mil. The guides up here in Alaska are now starting to use the guns, uh, for bear protection. Grizzly, when they're taking the clients out, uh, the performance has gotten really good on them. And when you have a package like a 1911 that's a smaller, lighter pistol, carries more rounds than either a 44 or the 460 Smith & Wesson or the 500, it is making it pretty popular for them to carry and have it convenient and readily available if they need to pull it quick. Anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there, and I know you're more of a gun guy and maybe something interesting for you also. Anyway, thanks.
2: Bye.
0: Um, I'm actually a pretty big fan of the 10mm for what it works well for. Uh, One thing I want to point out, A 1911 that shoots 10 millimeter is not the same size as a 1911 that shoots 45 A.P.C. It is a beefed up gun. It is larger. It is uh, heavier, Um, and that's a good thing in a way because it does have a significantly heavier recoil than, let's say, a a 40 or a 45. Uh, So that heavier frame actually is quite beneficial. Uh, I recently, I guess, within four or five months ago, uh, for the first time ever fired a 10 millimeter in a 1911 platform. I previously fired uh, the Glock and what was the other one? I can't remember now. Um, some Italian manufactured one uh, a, a friend had that I was thinking about buying one, and actually I, I didn't really like it very much. Not the round, but the gun itself. Um, it, 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 it's fine for what it is. I think it actually makes a better uh, hunting round than a defensive round. Uh, Not that it won't do a hell of a good job, but if you're gonna carry concealed, the guns that shoot it don't really lend themselves to that very well. You're not gonna see a 10 millimeter compact, you know, uh, or subcompact. And if you did, you probably wouldn't want to shoot it. Uh, As as a sidearm in bear country, yeah, Um, probably definitely better suited than you know, like a a Ruger Redhawk in 44 Magnum or something like that uh one being more rounds because bears have a tendency when they want to eat you to take a lot of lead before they stop so you know even that one or two extra rounds while you're being mauled might be quite beneficial to have um it's not something i think about a lot cuz the places that i do hunt where bears are we're not talking about grizzly bears and brown bears we're talking about black bears and Uh, While there are some attacks by black bears, there's nowhere near uh, the level of serious attacks and, and death caused by them, and most people that are attacked by black bears are dumbasses that they see the sign that says, don't feed the bears, and they think it means everybody but them. You know, you don't you don't really hear a lot about hunters, you know, being charged uh, by a black bear, or hunters or fishermen, you know, fishing a river and having a black bear come out and charge them. Uh, and when things like that begin to happen, it usually has something to do with somehow getting between the mother bear and her cubs, and that can be dangerous with with any bear. But in general, that's a that's an Alaska problem, you know, that's an Alaska, uh, you know, Western Canada issue. Uh, to worry about is having a, you know, being, having your wool rich and button pieces found in a pile of bear poop, uh, is, is a, is an Alaskan problem. I, I, think it's a damn good cartridge for deer hunting, uh, for medium to even large game for the handgunner. Uh, Ted Nugent shot a cape buffalo with one, uh, and successfully did so. I wouldn't advise that. I don't think that's a good idea. And, I mean, he, like, unloaded on it. I saw the video of it, like, multiple shots, like, just quick and fast and hard and, and it put it down pretty good, and you can do that. But that's, that's you know, an entertainer trying to be extravagant and, and prove a point. I think that there are certain size animals that, you know, if you had to do it in a survival situation, okay, sure. But uh, it, it's best suited as either a home defense weapon, um, or a sportsman's round. I think it's real potential. I can't remember the name of the rifle now. There's some survive, take takedown survival rifle that's relatively new. It kind of sort of looks like an AR, but it's not. It's, it's, it's more like a, like a sub 2K, uh, in, in its frame, but it looks like an AR in its structure. Uh, and, uh, again, I can't remember what they're called, but they make them in a variety of calibers, including 10 millimeter. I think when we put the 10 millimeter in a 16 inch carbine, we have a serious brush hunting cartridge. We really do. I mean, I, I think it would make a fine round in a lever gun. I'd like to see Marlin uh, put it in a lever gun. I, I think it'd just be dynamite that way. But it's one of those things that are nice to have, but you don't really need it. You, you want it, I think, is the kind of a thing. Uh, I have a couple friends that have them, and they love them, but I don't know how often they actually use them other than just to take them out and shoot. Um they, they do work on pigs, though. We've learned that. Anyway, uh, interesting idea uh, or interesting call. Thanks for it. Let's take one more, and we'll be done for the day.
1: Hey, Jack. This is Steve from Plant City, Florida. got a question about the need of using an IBC toad as a grow-out tank to grow out some fish, tilapia, channel cats, things like that, before stocking in a pond. Details uh, emailed in about three or four months ago about a pond slash creek thing that's uh, running across the back of my property that was very choked out with weeds and brush. And uh, that the question was uh, about aquaponics, using the water for aquaponics. To answer that question, it made perfect sense. Thank you very much for that. Uh, but I, now I would like to, uh, to stock it. I just got the pond cleared out, and there are a couple uh mudfish that I was able to catch out of there so far, so there is some, you know, life in there. Um, again, this is a spring-fed uh, pond so it's you know always got water in it um, but now um, I want to stock it up with some tilapia and channel cats, and wondering what the need was um, if any on um, making them a little bit bigger before I throw them in there's a lot of brush a lot of you know decomposed plant matter and stuff on the bottom probably about a foot deep so I think there's a lot of stuff for them to eat but uh, you know tilapia being bottom feeders and such um, there's a couple of blue herons hanging out and uh, a couple of hawks and, you know, I'm worried if they'll eat the little, uh, fingerlings before they get big enough, but yet they'll, I've seen them take a big ol' eel out of there too, so um I don't think the size would matter too much for them. I was planning on building a couple of little, uh, PVC fish habitats and, you know, another one that I saw on, uh, on Google about, you know, using pallets and, and PVC to give, uh, the fish something to hide in. Um, but just wondering what you thought. Um, about the need to uh, grow them out first. Um, With the 5 toad I was going to use a pump to pump in water uh, use a drain at the bottom to drain the waste matter like once a week and doing a water change out that way but anyways, what are your thoughts? Love the show, Jack. Bye-bye.
0: So here's the deal. Uh, I don't think you need to do any growing out at all. Uh, I remember the picture of the pond. It's fairly large. There's a lot of structure uh, channel cats in particular are going to favor deeper water. They're not going to be up on the shoreline playing around, getting eaten by your herons and stuff like that. Though herons can be a problem. But drawing them out is just not going to be very, uh, very useful. Uh, if you think about a bird called an egret, and you can look them up if you don't know what they are, they're, they're, they're a much smaller bird than a great blue heron. And they have this really pencil thin neck that you'd think, man, much, much can't get down there. And I remember one time I was fishing in Florida. And uh, t- taking taken a guide, guided fishing trip, and we w- went out, and it was one where if you kept some fish, the guide would clean the fish for you at the end of the day. And uh, I let, like, was mostly catching snook, and I let all the snook go. Uh, and uh, I think I caught a couple of reds, and we let those go. But, like, right toward the end, we're coming by some mangroves, and we see some fish hitting the surface. He's like, those are spec trout and i like to eat sea trout i really do so we we kind of went in on the trolling motor and started throwing some top waters and uh got like four really nice speckled trout i'm talking like oh probably 18 inches to 20 inches nice size trout so we're back at the dock and it's just four fish so he's just going to fillet them right there on the dock right by the side of the boat and uh, this egret is hanging out. He sees, so that's Henry. He lives here. He waits for this. He, he, so he fillets this, this trout. It's about an 18-inch long trout. It had been filleted, but you know what I'm talking about. The head's on it, the tail's on it, the bone structure's there. And he just tosses it in the water, and this freaking egret dives in, grabs this 18-inch fish skeleton, cocks its head up, and just goes, and gone like a snake. Uh, and he ate two more of them, and then another bird came in and the guide threw the, the fourth one. to. So this 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 bird ate three large fish skeletons whole. And so the concept that maybe you'd grow your tilapia at a hand size and it's going to be safe from a blue heron is just not the case. Your, your fish actually have a greater potential. You said you caught some mudfish in there. And I'm assuming you mean bowfin, uh, which are very common in Florida. And I, I used to love as a kid growing up in Florida to catch them for fun. Uh, they turn out from what YouTube says anyway to not be a bad eating fish, even though they sure don't look like they'd be. Um, but those are very predatory. So you're you know you got some black bass in there, you've got some mudfish in there, fish like that are probably if you got some grass pickerel a bigger threat to your your small fish than anything else. But that's that's life in a pond. What, what I would suggest is if you want larger uh, channel cats Just buy them larger When you look at the cost difference Between like 4 inch channel catfish For stocking And an 8 inch channel catfish for stocking You can't afford to raise that fish From 4 to 8 inches For what the, the difference in the stocking price is So that would be one thing That you could do uh, Another thing is with tilapia if you If you want a lot of tilapia You can set up a breeding trio In a tank And you can look on YouTube How to set up breeding tilapia uh, and uh, once you get a pair of breeding, you can make as much fry as you want, and you might want to grow them out, you know, to fingerling size, you know, one other tank and growing them out a couple hundred at a time to, you know, where they're, I don't know, three-quarters of an inch long before you put them in there it might be helpful, but once they start reproducing, you're in good shape. Uh, a lot of places stocking tilapia is illegal in recreational ponds, In Texas, it's illegal unless you use Mozambiques because they know they're not going to make it through our winters. Uh, Blue and white Nile, you need a a permit for, and it ain't real easy to get, and everything else is considered illegal in the state of Texas to put in the ground. Uh, So I think you're okay with that. Um, Tilapia will eat just about anything. They'll eat minnows, they'll eat vegetation, they'll eat little tilapia. Uh, They're also very good. Uh, for the health of your predator fish in the system itself, channel cats are going to eat little tilapia, so you got a whole food chain going on there. So honestly, I would just get fish that are appropriately sized to get started with and put them straight away into the pond. Um, if you want to do some, you know, fish in IBCs or something like that, you can. With a pond right there that's spring-fed, one of the easy things you could do is run a small pump that's run into your IBCs, and then run an overflow back to your pond and just constantly be moving pond water through your IBCs. You could plumb 8, 10, 12, 14, 15 together like that. Um, you could farm tilapia that way and know that you can get them out when you want them. There'd be nothing wrong with that. You could do the same thing with channel cats. But if you, if your goal is to have a sustainable population of fish in the pond, just put the fish in the pond. And, and 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 just accept that you're gonna lose some to predators. So stock at you know a recommended density based on the size of your pond and what you can find from your you know your local uh, suppliers. And then I'm gonna tell you something that's technically illegal, but people do it all the time. And it's up to you whether you want to do it or not. If you can find a place where they have fish like you want in your pond, and you can catch them, well, you can bring them home alive. And if the rabbit sheriff asks you what you're doing with them, well, I take them home alive so they're fresh when I clean them. And uh, then you might just change your mind and decide, I really didn't want this fish, and it might accidentally fall in your pond. All right? Now, I think that's totally illegal in some states, somewhat okay in other states, et cetera. But I'm just saying that, like, it, there's laws and there's enforced laws. And many laws are only enforced laws when people are stupid about how they do things. And it amazes me. I know people, for instance, that smoke pot in states where it's not yet legalized. They go, oh, man, you can't do that shut up, pothead, really? And I got nothing against people that smoke pot, but in that instance, it's like, shut up, pothead. You're worried about me catching some green sunfish and putting them in my stock tank, and uh, you're you're burning an ounce of grass a week. Uh, They're both illegal, and no one's bothering either one of us because we're not being stupid about how we do it. All right, so uh, when you bend the laws, when you go into gray areas, things like that, you know, don't advertise what you're doing, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you like the show and you want to help support the work we do, one of the ways you can do that is when you're going to do some shopping online, consider going to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. It redirects you to a page on the survivalpodcast.com website where there's a link. You click that link, you go over to Amazon, you'll see Amazon's deals of the day. See if there's anything there you want. If there isn't, just search for stuff. Once you search for stuff after doing that, it doesn't matter what you buy. Anything you buy, we're going to get credit for is the affiliate that referred you to the Amazon website. We also put up reviews for you every day. And I'm pretty excited about today's review. Um, I worked pretty long and hard to find a product that I could recommend, uh, with confidence in this category. And I've been testing this product, gee, I guess about three and a half, four weeks. I got it in right before, uh, the workshop started. So that gives you kind of a time frame, And, uh, I had it, had them sitting up on top of the uh, pool deck to test them out, but I didn't have them mounted yet. They are made by a company called Litom, or Litom, I don't know, Litum, uh, Litom, L-I-T-O-M. Uh, and these are solar LED motion sensing security lights. The ones that I trialed uh, are 20 LEDs. Uh, they make little bitty ones that are only 8 LEDs, and they make great big ones with 54 LEDs. I settled on the 20 LED model and uh, I, I, thanks to a listener out there, I've learned about a new website called Fake Spot. So when I'm evaluating products on Amazon now and they have great reviews, I, I drop them into Fake Spot and it gives me a grade from an A to an F. And like a B or an A, it means the reviews are trustworthy. There's a couple of reviews in there that are suspect, but the overall reviews are, you know, honest reviews. So they check it, and, and I checked out some of their other ones the 54 LED, the LED, d eight LEDs, and some of other stuff that they make, because they make a lot of cool stuff, and it all seems to be very highly reviewed. But the only one that I've used so far, just to be clear, is a 20 LED one. I like the size of them. They're not real big. Uh, They are bright. They're like 420 lumens or something like that, 420 or 440, one or the other. Uh, Really, really bright, and... uh, one of the reasons that they are so reliable is most of these lights, and I've tr- checked out a bunch of them, and I've even bought a few, and they're all freaking garbage. They're all garbage. They just suck. Um, this one, and, and most of them use double A's or AAA batteries, and that's part of the problem, I feel. This one uses a single 18650 lithium ion per uh, unit. And uh, that's to me, that's the future of rechargeable batteries and small devices. Uh, I think maybe you can hear the goose yelling in the window out there. But 18650 batteries, and they have three settings. One's a steady-on dim, and this is so that they'll last longer. And I'm not really using one of the steady-on either way, but basically it's steady-on at about half power, so about 200 lumens. You can see pretty good from a distance. It lights an area up. But when you walk past it in that area, it kicks up to the full brightness, and then when you you know leave the area, it drops back down. This would be for keeping an area lit up constantly. Or you can put it on steady-on bright, where it just goes full-on, and you'll get about four to six hours of uh, light, uh, putting mine on a full charge and checking it, it drained the battery somewhere around five and a half hours uh, from the test that I did. So it's, it's right in that number that the manufacturer is providing as a spec. The way I bought them to be used is with the motion sensor mode, which means you put them on setting three, you hang them up where you want them, and they just sit there dark. That means they're not using any of that power. That means they're building up power day after day after day until that battery is fully charged. And when you, you or anything else walks into the area and the sensors are supposed to work about 26 feet, I measured mine at 25. So, again, it's right in that spec that the manufacturer is giving. And the higher you put them up, obviously, the greater area they're going to cover. Um, and when something enters that, the lights come on. And when there's no motion detected for 30 seconds, they go back off. So I wanted these because the front of our house is very dark. And I didn't want to run power or anything like that out there. And I wanted, when we pulled the vehicle in, it have the area lit up. And the porch, we have a really cool light we bought from Lowe's. It has a, a sensor on it. knows when it's dark, so you just leave the light on it. It stays off until it gets dark and comes on. But it's still dark in there, so I wanted to light that area up. And maybe I might get a few more and light the entrance area up around our gate as well because we have to go out there sometimes at night, and it's just nice to have additional lighting. And then the area around our pool deck over by our duck holding area, I'm, I've just ordered some more today now that I'm done with my testing and sure that they are worth what I want to go forward with. I want to light that area. But the little eight LED ones, they're pretty cheap comparatively. I'm thinking about buying about you know six of those and putting them on the fence all the way around the duck holding area, because we do have now the electric fence around there but when Mr. Fox or Mr. Coyote comes prowling up and gets within that 26 feet and that light hits him, that's very upsetting to a predator. So that's another use for them as well. The only place they wouldn't be good, obviously, a place that's fully shaded, like my back porch. I'd love to put like three of them right along the porch, so as you're walking there, they just light up uh, because it's dark as hell back there at night. Um, you know, when you got to go out to the garage or whatever. However, um, they have another product that I'm going to trial as well. It's uh, uh, a string of two hundred led like Christmas lights, and it 's got its own little thing. You can put the uh, solar panel a little bit further away, you know so you can put it like up on top of the roof uh, of my uh, of my overhang back in that area i 'm going to try those those should be a nice gentle always on light, and should make it through most of the night. So I think we found a really great uh, vendor and litum or lightum i'm not again i 'm not sure how you would properly pronounce their name. Uh, I think they're probably on par with uh, Kingbow, with the, the plant lights that I found. It's, I mean, you guys have, so many people are using those Kingbow uh, LED lights now for growing plants. Uh, they are an incredible value. And I think this is that kind of a product that will be able, I'll be able to check out some of their other ones. But I, again, I just want to be clear for now that the 20 LED ones are the ones I've actually tested and trialed. And they're the ones on review today. And I think they can make your, your home more safe by providing light in areas that you don't have where you'd like to. And I think they can make it more secure. Because you know what else doesn't like walking up to an area, sneaking around, and a light comes on them? Two-legged rats. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's a good security measure and a good safety measure and a good convenience measure all in one. I think a two pack of them is around 30 bucks or 36 bucks or something like that. Anyway, you can check them out. They're at, uh, tspaz.com or you'll see them as the most recently reviewed item at survivalpodcast.com. With that, let's talk about today's song of the day. So today's song of the day is, uh, is one I remember very fondly. And we have John Adams selecting our songs for each year. Uh, This year, 1983, he has selected Quiet Riot with Come On, Feel The Noise. He says the rise of the hair bands is occurring and slowly becoming more mainstream. This is the first song to break through the chart or billboard top 100 in 1984, opening the door for a flood of hair bands hits in the coming years. The song was originally written and sung by the British band Slade, 1973 that chartered in the UK. Quiet Riot actually did multiple covers of Slade songs. And John says, As a young teen, this was the first album that struck a chord with my rebellious side. I remember being stoked to get a dubbed cassette copy of this album. The quality may not have been great, but it was the tag of the time and the price was right. Within a few years, Quiet Riot was all but washed aside in the river of Aqueduct. Uh, yeah, this this kind of the rise of the hair bands. And so there's like a debate, like, was Quiet Riot a heavy metal band? And Wikipedia says they are. And when I was in uh, Catholic school at the time that did in 84, like this song was released in 83, but it came and, came and hit the big time in 84, uh, I kind of felt like it was kind of knowing heavy metal and knowing Quiet Riot. Like, no, no. Quiet Riot was not a heavy metal band. Quiet Riot was uh, an 80s glam rock band. That's what they were. They're you know in the same uh, place with with bands like Poison and Cinderella and and, and what have you. Uh, they they were not heavy metal, um, you know, but they were like heavy metal light, I guess. And I'm with John on the rebellious thing. Um, definitely by now, I had discovered the dual cassette uh, tape deck and dubbed tapes and making tapes off the radio as well and then dubbing those only I wasn't usually the guy receiving the dub tape I was the guy you could get the dub tape from for like four or five bucks I used Memorex with a case and wrote out all the stuff on it and everything too so you knew what it was and you could keep it in your collection you know if you are an 80s kid you remember having a box like, it looked like a suitcase or a briefcase, and you opened it up, and you, all your cassettes were in there, and they had a little thing, and they slit. Remember those? When's the last time you saw one? Some of you that just have old school music around, you might still have that, but I mean, I don't even have a case for CDs anymore. But, uh, I remember having, like, I had mountains because what I would do is whenever an album would come out and it was really popular, I would go out and buy it. And if I sold two to three tapes, I paid for it. So if I sold five or six tapes, I put money in the Spirico Sludge Fund. I guess I just always was kind of an entrepreneur. Um, and I remember, so this is why I laugh at all of the, crap today about like you know torrents and the movie industry flipping out that they're gonna you know the movies are the actors are gonna go poor or whatever this is the same shit they said back then the, the dual cassette tape was the napster of 1980 okay and some of you're going young guys are going what's a napster i don't even remember it's a limewire what's a limewire like these music share, like that doesn't even exist anymore and, and i'll tell you part of why because right now, if you want to hear any song you want whenever you want, you know, with a premium subscription to Pandora, uh, or a premium subscription to, to, um, to iTunes Radio or whatever, you have unlimited access to music. iTunes Radio is great. I think it's like nine bucks a month. And you can listen to anything you want whenever you want all the time. You can pull up a whole album and play it or whatever. And it was always just about the, the 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 production companies catching up with reality. But it's it, it basically was the techno anarchy of its time. And and that's why I think there's a message in this. The when, when we talk about things like Bitcoin and virtual nations or something like that people say, "Well, it won't matter." It it does matter. It does matter. Without Napster, you wouldn't have things like, you know, iHeartRadio Radio and and iTunes Radio and Pandora and and you know there was and there's there's so many that made it happen that got put under like Groove Shark was a great site and you could run it on your phone and it basically it, it did you know what these premium services did for free but they eventually put them out of business but still those are the things that drag us forward the other thing about rebellion I mentioned Catholic school. Myself and my friends, specifically my male friends at this time, we were elated that adults and teachers and grandparents and church members were horrified by the fact that we listened to Heavy Metal and Quiet Riot and Twisted Sister and things like that. And the thing was, they never understood their outrage, their concern, their attacking it made it more popular. If they would have ignored it, all of that stuff would have never been as big as it was. Keep that in mind when you worry about what your kids are listening to today. Uh, just saying. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough or even if they don't.